Good morning. Uh, go ahead, take your Bibles out, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. And finally, I feel like we get a little bit of a reprieve of, of such kind of deep material uh, or deep times that we're having to kind of walk through on Sunday mornings. And so this will be this morning challenging, but a lot of what we're doing is, is setting up the book of 1 Corinthians. There's some things that we need to know as we, as we dive into this book so that we can understand what God is trying to tell us, so we understand where Paul, the writer, uh, is coming from and what the church is going through. And we're going to find that it's very similar to some of the things we go through in our culture, uh, but we do need to do a lot of setup today. I do think that there is a challenging word for us, but I'm a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of glad it's a little lighter. Um, and so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, uh, we're just going to look at the introductory, uh, the introduction this morning, uh, the first couple of verses together. So let's pray as you turn there. God, thank you so much for this time that we get to spend together in your word this morning. Uh, thank you for the Next Steps class that's happening uh, after the 11 o'clock service, the family member meeting tonight. God, there's so many things that are going on, and we're grateful to be a part of what you're doing. And God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us as we open up your word. God, I pray that you would make it clear to us what you would have us to hear. Uh, Lord, that it would transform our hearts, that you would do a powerful work in our minds uh, Lord, I pray that we would have a deeper understanding of you, that each of us would fall deeper in love with you. And God, for those who may not know you, uh, Lord, whether they're here in person or watching at home, God, I pray that you would just move powerfully in their heart. I pray that you would reveal yourself, maybe for the very first time, that you are the one, that you are the Savior, that you are the King, that you are the Lord, that we were created for and that we long for and that we look for. And so, God, this morning, I pray that many people will come to know you, that we would grow deeper in you. We pray for the church of our city and really all around the world, that everywhere that your word is proclaimed today, you would add to your church and you would build your people up. And so, Lord, we, we asked today that we would have a deep understanding of your gospel truth and that we would be unified in that reality. And so, Lord, we give this time to you and pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Um, here's one thing that I know to be true. If you've grown up in church, uh, if you haven't, then, then maybe you haven't really thought of the early church in the first century this way. But if you grew up in church, you at some point have either yourself or heard someone else talk of the early church in the first century in this way. And we have this tendency to kind of see the early church through a lens of idealism. Uh, we think to ourselves, man, if the church could just be the way that it was in the first century, in the beginning, when the Bible was being written, and the apostles were walking on the earth, and Jesus was sending the Holy Spirit powerfully in the, his people, and the church was just exploding, then everything would be so good. And I've heard, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my life. I just wish that the church could go back to the way it was in the first century, because that would solve all of our problems. Everything would be so much better, and the church today is just so, it's out of whack. It's so broken, and, and while I would agree in many different ways, because we are here, and we make up the church, that the church in Corinth gives us this great example of the reality that we face as a people gathering together with, with sinful hearts, with sinful natures, and though God is working in us and we do in him have salvation and we see in this letter that we do have uh, him working in us, that we are made holy and perfect and righteous because he is holy and perfect and righteous. So when we place our faith in the reality of what Jesus has done for us by living perfectly, dying on the cross and rising from the grave, then we in the eyes of God are made perfect and holy in him, but yet we still struggle with the things of the world with our own hearts. Uh, and so if you feel like you've kind of experienced some brokenness in the church, like the church of Corinth has seen it all. It's seen it all. And, and one of the beauties of this text is, is being able to see how God takes a broken mess and makes it something beautiful. How God, how God really mends and redeems his people. And we get to see that in the Corinthian church. Because listen, instead of unity in the gospel truth, they are fighting with one another like crazy. Rather than worshiping together, they're suing each other. 
Rather than eating meals together, they're actually showing up for communion, which was kind of more done. We'll see this throughout the book. It was more done um, kind of in a meal type of setting, but they're showing up for communion and they're getting drunk on the communion wine. Instead of purity, there's sexual perversion of every sort that even in our day, listen, we would all look at and call weird. There's things that are happening. There's lots of cliques that are happening. They're picking different leaders that they want to kind of gather around and follow. There's, there's different cliques on, on views of marriage and how God has ordained that and what it looks like in the church. There's different views on the afterlife. And so they're making all of these little groups based on different beliefs that they have. So there were cliques in the church, just like we feel like there are cliques in the church today. Because anytime we get a group of people together, that is going to be our tendency. They're questioning Paul's authority throughout the book. They're just kind of uh, playing off this, this idea, well, well, Paul, I know that God called you. I know that he's speaking through you, but can we really trust everything that you're saying? That, that kind of comes across to me like that's just your opinion. That's your interpretation of what God has said. The poor are being oppressed and exploited by the rich. Their gatherings, we're going to see, are just absolutely chaotic They loved showing off the gifts that God had given them, and they're using their gifts for themselves to get glory for themselves, to get position for themselves, to have power for themselves rather than for the glory of God. So this church, and we could go on and on and on and on, is just as broken and just as messy as the church today. And we're going to see the gospel work in that and what God is calling us to and how God makes a messy thing beautiful how he reveals himself and his glory and his gospel in all that takes place and how we can have unity in him. And so we're going to be in this book for the better part of a year. Uh, It's typically what we do here at Redemption Hill Church is we walk through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're going to spend a long time here in 1 Corinthians. So study it at home, read it, Jot down questions that you have as you're reading so that you can talk about those in small group, and many of them will be addressed here on Sunday morning. And, and, and here's the reality of this book. Whether you have read this, uh, never read this epistle before in your life, and epistle is just a, a bougie word for letter, all right? Um, if you've never read this epistle in your life or you have studied it over and over and over again, here is what I know about this book. It, it, uh, it goes up and, and talks about some real, some quite frankly shocking and just really candid things get covered in this book. Things that are going to stretch every single one of us. Things that are going to make you want to look at me and go, well, that's just your interpretation. Things that are, you're going to struggle with when you go home. There's going to be reasons that you're not going to want to come on certain weeks and, and hear what God's word has to say because it is shocking. And I love, for one, the fact that the Bible is the most honest book ever written. It just lays out exactly what we're going through, exactly the way we feel, exactly the way that we think, and then brings the gospel truth into that. It brings real answers, and it leads to actual liberty and true understanding of everything that we're facing in our own lives and in our culture today. Now, here's why many of these themes come up, this craziness in the church. Paul, who's writing this letter, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in just a second. I know many of us are pretty aware with Paul, but maybe not all of us. So we'll talk about him in just a moment. But Paul, an apostle who's writing this letter, he has gone to Corinth about five years before writing this letter to the church. At this point, the church has not exploded yet. Uh, It's probably around 50 to 60 people that are gathering together. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church. We can read all about it. And we studied it, actually, if you were here with us in the book of Acts, as we walked through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 18, we get the background of the Corinthian church. And we went through it in great detail in the book of Acts. And so I'm not going to do that this morning as in great of detail as if we had not done Acts chapter 18. Uh, If you were here for that, um, you may remember some of it. My my guess is you probably don't remember any of it if you were here. 
um, and maybe many of you weren't here. So I will go through a little bit of the detail of what's taking place in Corinth, but just know Acts chapter 18, you can read the entire background of how this church started. But Paul, he went to Corinth right after he went into Athens on his second missionary journey of planting churches. And he got there, and if you remember, uh, he, he was a little bit discouraged. Typically what Paul would do is go into the synagogue, and even though God had called him to the Gentile in Acts, Gentiles in Acts chapter 9, which we'll see in just a second, he typically would go into a new city and he would go straight to the synagogue. He would go to the Jewish people. Here in Corinth is the first place we see him actually going to the Gentile. He gets really upset with the Jewish people in the synagogue. They're uh, persecuting him. They're coming down on him. He gets really discouraged. He wants to leave, and God actually comes to him and says, hey, you need to stay. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. And he says this this all-important line, which I believe wholeheartedly for our city today. God says, I need you to stay. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. There are many people in the city who are mine. And, And I pray that prayer for us, that we as God's people would not be afraid. That we as God's people would be intentional where we live and where we work and where we play, knowing that God has placed us where we are in this time with these relationships and these places for a purpose. And he has for himself a healthy, thriving, uh, growing people of God in our city. And there are many who will place their faith in Jesus who have not yet, and he will use his church to bring the gospel to them. So God tells Paul this. So he ends up staying for about a year and a half. He goes back into the synagogue and we see that they actually persecute him. Uh, So he ends up going right next door. He says, okay, I'm going to take the gospel to the Gentiles now. He gets fed up with the synagogue and many people begin to come to faith and the church begins. And so five years have passed. And Paul is hearing some things that are going on in the church, and he typically would check up on the churches that he's planted. And so he's writing a letter to them to address some of the things that are happening. Because just in the few years since Paul has been there, the church has struggled in the midst of their culture and the culture that is all around them. And more and more, the church has been... uh, becoming taken over by the cultural norms in the city. Rather than the church and God's people bringing the norms, the values, the the gospel message into the places where they live, the place that they live is, is bringing its values and norms into the church. And the church is beginning to reflect the culture around it more than it is reflecting Christ in the culture. That's a foundational thing that's happening here in Corinth and in the church. They're allowing the culture around them to determine also the way that they view God. Maybe we struggle with this today. Maybe the culture is having a greater impact on the church than the church is revealing Christ in the culture. And maybe the culture is having a greater impact on how the church views God and his word then God in his word is, is the focal point in the lens in which the church is seeing the culture. That's happening here in Corinth. And there's this big question that the church is having to face. Will we just believe in God and call ourselves the church of God, or will we follow him? Will we actually be disciples? Will we, will we walk in what we believe? Will we allow the gospel to transform us and, and begin to walk in holiness that God has called us to and he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to actually walk in? Or will the church become irrelevant in the culture? Will the church not be able to live out what it is called to do? Because the church in Corinth And in every place and in every time, this is a question that we have to face. We're called to be in the city, but not of the world. In the world, but not of the world. In the city, to love the city, to care for the city, to show compassion in the places that we live, to enjoy the things that God has given us in the places that he has called us, to plant roots 
in the places he has called us to. Not to segregate and to become this subculture, but also not to just join in with everything that is going on in the culture around us, but to engage it. And ultimately what we're called to do is to reveal the kingdom of God in everything that we do. Understanding that when we place our faith in Jesus, we actually have the community with God that we were created to have through his work for us, that we are saved and brought into his community and, and, and revealed the kingdom of God that we're called to, that we might begin to live that out, live out and reflect the community that we are called to have and we have through Jesus and to reveal the kingdom of God in everything that we do in the kingdom of the world. So we're not to reflect and dwell and live in the kingdom of the world, but reveal the kingdom of God into the world and we're to reveal the community that we have with God through Jesus Christ in everything we do. Because we were created to know God and to live in, in his way and, and to reveal and know his kingdom. It's what every single one of us longs for. All of us are searching for that reality, whether we know it or not. And the church, the people of God are called to reveal that 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 we are seeking is found in God and God alone. So what we would say here as followers of Jesus in our society, as we engage with our culture, is that we are to do three different things as we look at our culture when we are found in Christ. One is that sometimes we do have to reject some things. There are things that are innately just against God, against holiness. They are sinful by nature. So there are some things that we have to reject. Now, we do so in love. We do so in revealing grace. We're not, we're not thumping people over the head with our Bibles, but we're trying to help people see that this isn't what they're actually created to do. This isn't what will bring joy into their life. This isn't what we are called to, and this is not what will give us fulfillment. So the, the fact that you're seeking life in this particular thing is actually hurting you, not bringing you closer to the life that you seek. So there are things that we have to reject. Secondly, there are things that we need to, as the people of God, redeem. There are good things like art and music and entertainment and things that God has given us to give him glory with. And, and we are, uh, they're not innately evil or sinful, but maybe they're used in sinful ways. Maybe they're used to do uh, broken things and they're not actually fulfilling us in the way that God has created it to. So art, music, even the way that we view sex in our culture would be something that as believers and followers of Christ, revealing the community we have in God and his kingdom would say, these are things that are good, but we're not using them in good ways. We're not giving glory to God with them, and so they need to be redeemed. And so really we're shining a light on their goodness and the way that God has called us to use them for our joy and his glory. So some we reject, some we seek to redeem, and some we just receive. There are some things that are just good, and, and our culture actually reflects that we are created in the image of God. And so we, we don't like things that are unjust. We don't like oppression, even as a culture. And maybe some of the ways that we go after seeking to right wrongs needs to be redeemed. But we can all receive the fact that things are wrong, and they need to be made right. And so our culture, in some ways, seeks to make right what is wrong because we are created in the image of God and we therefore know what is good. We desire what is good because God is good. We desire to reveal his kingdom because his kingdom is perfect. And we innately understand that the kingdom of the world is not perfect and, and we desire to image something that we are not. And so we try to make what is wrong right. So there are some things we just receive. So as followers of Christ, as we look at our community, our culture, our society, there are some things that we reject, there are some that we seek to redeem, and there are some good things that we receive. But the Corinthian church is struggling. They are receiving things that they should reject. They're not living redemptively together and revealing the truth of who God is in unity to all that are around them as God has called us to as his people. 
a big part of that is that we need to understand what's actually happening in Corinth. So let me give us a little bit of the history here. And again, Acts chapter 18 is where you get this kind of drawn out. And you can go back and listen to that if you would like to in our Acts series where we really kind of fleshed these things out. But one of the reasons that the Corinthian church is struggling so much is because of everything that was going on there. They're new believers they're, they're, they're kind of trying to figure out how uh, a follower of Christ fits into the world. How do we actually live in the community revealing the unity that we have in Christ? What does that look like? Maybe that's a question that we should ask as the church today. A lot of times I think we could just look at the church and say, hey, we're not actually engaging with culture properly. And we point the finger out really quickly about that. But then we don't actually have conversations about what it should look like. And maybe that's because we like to point out things that are wrong, but we don't like to be a part of the solution. And so when we see the Corinthian church, we need to understand how much like us they are. See, in Corinth, there were about 200 to 250,000 people at the time. So it was a very large city for the day. Um, But you can really think it was was about the size of Winston-Salem. 200 to 250,000 people. Winston-Salem's just over that. And it was, it was essentially the capital of a region known as Achaia in, in the province of Greece. It's still there today. The Bible is about real people and real places and real times with real truth. And so it's, it's taking place in a place that we can actually look up on the map today. Corinth was on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, um, and it was this really important city. It was a city that everybody would travel to and travel through. If you look at a map of Greece, um, there's a peninsula there that goes right through the the, the heart of Greece, and it separates kind of the northeast from the southwest. Um, And there's this little piece now. It's a canal um, that's three and a half miles long, but it wasn't actually a canal until 1893. Now, in Paul's day, Nero, about 15 years after Paul's writing this letter, actually tried uh, to build a canal. Julius Caesar had the first idea to put a canal there, uh, which we'll see why that's so important in just a second. But he quickly discovered it can't be done. It's too rocky. The terrain is too tough. We don't have the ability to do it. Nero, uh, being the narcissist that he was, he believed that he could do it. So he actually tried, uh, but was unable to do so, and a canal wasn't actually completed until 1893. But in this time, there was this three-and-a-half-mile stretch of land between bodies of water. And so to be able to get to the other side, they had this pulley system where they would actually put boats out of the water, and they would put them on these wheels, really this pulley system, and they would take them across the three-and-a-half miles of land to the other side. Because to be able to to sail all the way around the southern part of Greece was 200 miles, and it was a very dangerous journey. So this was quicker for them. It was easier for them uh, because the the Achaean Sea and the Adriatic Sea were actually separated by this body of land. You also needed to be able to travel from south to north through Greece. And Corinth was right in the middle of this, this, uh, this pulley system. And so everybody would go through. People were traveling by foot would go through to go from north to south in Greece, and people that were going from sea to sea would travel through. So you can imagine how, how this was just a hot spot for people to travel. It was a place to make money, and it was also a place to spend money. It held the Isthmian Games, which were the second largest sporting event games, uh, second only to the Olympics in Athens. It had tons of theaters and entertainment. It had what we would call today nightclubs, um, just the entertainment capital of Greece in many, many ways. It was kind of like Vegas and Mardi Gras just kind of smashed together. That's basically what it was. And so people would go there from all around the world. They had lots of religious backgrounds, therefore, lots of cultural backgrounds. And, and what happens there literally stays there. 
There's no phones, there's no social media, there's no pictures. And so as you're traveling and you're making money, this is the place that you would spend money. And all of these cultural backgrounds are coming together. All of these religious backgrounds are coming together. So there were many gods there. There were much entertainment there. There were many ways to spend the money that you were making. And people came up with all sorts of ways to do it. One of the most notable forms of worship in Corinth was itself sex. On the Acropolis, they had the temple of Aphrodite, who's the goddess of sexual love and beauty. And in that temple, at any given time, lived a thousand prostitutes who would roam the city looking for worshipers who were ready to pay their tithe, who were ready to pay their offering. And this was a main form of worship in the city. Drunkenness was extremely common. In fact, being called a Corinthian was slang for just being a disaster looking for a place to happen. All right? Like it was just in the Greek plays, if you played a Corinthian, you would always play drunk. You would always play like the partier. You would always play somebody who wasn't really quite sure what was going on around you. And so they had a term, you're acting like a Corinthian. So, so what we have here is this place where so many people are going and there's so many opportunities to do things that you wouldn't normally do. There were many gods to worship, many ways to spend money. And so people would go and do these types of things. And here's what we have in, in summary. The culture in Corinth is based on making money, Finding power, seeking success, having pleasure, making something of yourself and being free to do whatever you choose and to do whatever your heart desires. And so this young church was struggling with the culture around them affecting them and them imaging that culture rather than imaging Christ. Now, now let me just ask you, with that summary that I just gave you of Corinth and what it looked like, can we see a connection to Corinth and our nation? Can we see a connection to Corinth and the church today? Can we see a connection maybe to Corinth and the lives of those who live there in our lives and the struggle we have as we look at our culture and we have so many opportunities for success and power and worship and, and money and, and value and meaning being found in the things of the world that we struggle as the people of God to understand what does it look like to bear his image What does it look like to reveal his kingdom where we are, where we live, and where we work, and where we play? Might it be the case that the the church in America today struggles wholeheartedly and mightily not to reveal the culture around us and to reveal the image of God to the culture around us? See, this is what the church in Corinth is struggling with. They live in a society that tells them to chase anything other than God. We live in a society that tells us to chase anything for value and worth other than God. And we have a tendency to be found in the cultural norms, to be defined by what the world says gives us value and to spend our time and to spend our money and to spend our gifts on those things and seeking to achieve them, to get the worth that the world says will come when we get them, rather than seeking our identity and worth in Christ. And just a sobering thought this morning, because some of us might say, well, I don't think that that's where I am, but listen to me. The average follower of Christ in America who says that they are a Christian spends little more than two hours a month in, in direct contact or, or in, in, in just kind of an uninterrupted instance with God, mainly just by going to church twice a month. That gives you 166 hours throughout the rest of the week. And let me just kind of submit to us that if we're only spending two hours with God, it probably is not heavily influencing the other 166 hours. The culture might be influencing us more than we think. So this is an important question for us to face. 
How do we find life and unity in Christ as a church in a culture that finds life in itself and is so divided? How do we reveal Christ in everything that we do? How do we live out the, the gospel of Christ in word and in action where we live and where we work and where we play? And so, so this morning, I want us to wrestle with some of these questions like Corinth has to wrestle with them. How do we actually follow Jesus? What does it look like in our culture? And are we following Jesus or are we following the culture? So as we get to the, the text, and again, we're just looking over a couple of verses this morning as some background and context for everything that Paul's about to jump into. This is so important foundationally for all of the messiness that we're about to talk about in this book. And what we need to know is, as we get into verse 1 is that the church actually sent Paul a letter and Paul's responding. So 1 Corinthians is not actually the first letter Paul wrote to Corinth. We have four letters. Well, we don't have them, but we know that Paul wrote four letters based on what he says in 1 and 2 Corinthians. We don't have two of them. The first one we don't have. And so 1 Corinthians is listed as 1 Corinthians in your Bible because it's the first one that we have in the Bible. Um, but there's actually one before. Now, I speculate. We don't really know what happened to the other two. I w might suggest that because of what's happening and the content that Paul is writing about is that Paul might have written a couple of letters to the church in Corinth that were a little less spirit-filled than these two. All right? There might have been some harsher language and some things that, that we don't really need to read about today. But we get this letter, and the church wrote to Paul basically asking some simple questions. They had questions about marriage. They had questions about the gathering and what worshiping should look like. And then this, this lady named Chloe, um, she actually, it says, her people come to Paul, and they want to, to make sure that Paul actually knows what's going on. And so her people kind of come in. There's always those people in the church. They're like, hey, I know that you've heard this, but I need you to know what's really going on. And so Paul then addresses the questions that they actually ask. But then he also addresses some things that they don't ask. And that's why this letter is so explosive. And we're going to see that as we dive in this morning and throughout the next several months. So look at chapter one, verse one. Paul. All right, we got to stop there. All right, I told you that we would talk about Paul for just a couple of seconds. Now, I know most of you, you know a lot about Paul. All right, and so maybe, maybe some of you don't, uh, but if you remember who Paul is, Paul is actually now an apostle, somebody who God has revealed himself to, somebody that God has called to share the gospel with the Gentiles, to plant churches, to multiply disciples who make disciples. And so in Acts chapter 9, we get a lot of the background of Paul, and we're going to talk about him a lot as we walk through 1 Corinthians. So I don't want to get too deep into it this morning, but what we do need to remember is that Paul was actually raised devoutly religious, devoutly religious. He was one of the most religious people, when you read his background, that you have ever experienced or would ever meet. Maybe some of you, you feel like that describes you. You've grown up in the church. You've always been in the church. Every time the doors were open, you were there. You've always been what you would consider to be a good person. You've strived to live in obedience to God. And this just kind of describes who you are. So you kind of understand Paul when it comes to that. Now, Paul, and this is very important, though he believed in God and he sought to worship him to the best of his ability, he didn't actually know Jesus. Therefore, he did not worship God the way that God has called us to worship him. This is extremely important, and I bring this point up because so often we feel like we're spiritual or we're religious and we know God and we believe in God and we worship God. But ultimately, if we are not worshiping him in the way he has called us to, we are not worshiping him at all. 
It is not enough to be spiritual. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to believe in God. We are called to know and understand that God came, that God lived, that God died, that he rose, that he calls us to place our faith in him. And by his grace, through his work, we are healed. We are saved. We are redeemed. We're brought back into community with him. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us and empowers us to walk in the path of freedom, which is why God has laid out his law, that we might understand the way that we are created to walk, to image him and to reveal his kingdom. And by imaging him and revealing his kingdom, we are worshiping him and giving glory to him in everything that we say and everything that we do in the way that he has called us to. And in that alone, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? So Paul knows who God is. He worships him in his own way, but he does not have salvation in God. He's very religious. Now, if you did not grow up a religious person, then Paul's got a little bit for you too. Because if you feel like you've just been irreligious, you've done all kinds of things that God would not be happy with, Paul in his religion did all kinds of things that God was not happy with. He was a persecutor of what was then called the way or Christianity. I wish that we could go back to just calling it the way because it, it alludes to a path. It alludes to following. It alludes to moving forward. I think we define Christianity as just someone who said a prayer, prayed to Jesus, got baptized, and boom, that was it. And then we don't actually follow him the way that we're called to. But he was a persecutor of the way, and he was sanctioned to travel down the road to Damascus. And what he was trying to do is really cut off this movement of Jesus. The, the message of Jesus was spreading like crazy, and he says, okay, I'm going to go and travel. I'm going to cut this thing off. I'm going to imprison believers. I'm going to kill believers. I'm going to do whatever it takes to cut the spreading of Jesus down. And God shows up. And in Acts chapter 9, God actually blinds him for three days with his light. He tells Paul, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Which gives us this beautiful understanding of what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians with the unity that we have in Christ. See, God shows up and says, why are you persecuting me, Paul, when Paul is persecuting believers in him? And this shows us the oneness we have with him when we place our faith in him. That we're brought into the deepest community that we were created to have with our creator. And so God then calls Paul to follow him and to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul is forever transformed. His identity is completely shifted. And so we see that in Acts chapter 9. That's Paul. And God has done a radical work in his life. And God is at the center of everything that he does. And so as he is called, he writes to the church. So look at the rest of this text. By the will of, called by the will of God to an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Sosthenes is pretty important for a couple of different reasons. If you remember back in Acts chapter 18, or if you go back and you look there, if you weren't with us as we walked through the book of Acts, Sosthenes was actually a leader of the synagogue Paul went to that was persecuting him. And so Paul went into the synagogue. Some of the people in the synagogue began to follow Jesus. Crispus was one of them, and Crispus was the leader of the synagogue when Paul got there. And so Crispus is with Paul and that upsets the, the people of the synagogue. So they bring in another synagogue leader, Sosthenes. The synagogue then begins to persecute Paul. They get in this argument. Paul says, fine, I will take the gospel truth elsewhere. He leaves the synagogue and walks right next door. And, and there's a man there who lives right next door. It's Titus Justice, who is believed in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, is one of the men that he actually baptized. But his house was right next door. So Paul goes over and starts the church there. The, the synagogue decides they're going to take Paul and bring him before Galileo, who is the Roman leader in the area. And they're going to take him on and put him on trial. They're going to get him kicked out of Corinth. And when they go before Galileo, he actually says, hey, this sounds like a theological issue, not something that should be on my plate. So he dismisses Paul. This really embarrasses the synagogue. And so they take Sosthenes out of the city and they beat him. 
and then they replace him. And so it would not, listen, surprise me at all if Sosthenes was there who just persecuted Paul and took him on trial and is now healing in his home. And Paul went to his home and showed grace and love and compassion shared the gospel with Sosthenes. Sosthenes becomes a believer, and now he is with Paul just a handful of years later writing this letter. And Paul says, I, I think reminding the people what God actually does and the gospel actually does, but also saying, listen, I am not coming to you alone. I wish we had more time to dig into this this morning, but it is so important that God, Paul is talking about unity in the gospel He says, I'm an apostle sent by the will of God to you, but I also want you to know I do not come alone. I am in community. I am in unity. See, the church belongs to God. It is God's authority. He is the one who sends his people, who calls his people out, and we are in the body of Christ, and we walk through life together. And so Paul almost always reflects on who is with him when he's writing letters, He's never saying, this is just my authority. He's always pointing to God. And then he's always saying, the church is behind me. I have other people who are speaking into me. I am accountable for the things that I say and the things that I do. It's just yet another thing that that lays out the beauty and the depth of the community that we are called to have. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our last couple of minutes together, that's what we're going to look at just for a second. But I want us just to read so that we see the direction Paul's going, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of your Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we look at that text, here's a couple of things that I just want us to realize. As Paul, I said, establishes spiritual authority here, because one of the things I mentioned at the very beginning is that one of the issues the church was having was authority. They all want to make up their own minds. They all want to follow their own hearts. The cultural norm has infiltrated the church. And so they have a problem with anybody coming in and saying, this is God's word and God has the right to tell you no. So they're questioning his authority. So right off the bat, Paul establishes spiritual authority. He wants to remind them of who is actually calling him. He's saying, listen, this is not my opinion. These are not just, this is not just good advice that I think that you should follow. He says, this is from God. This is from your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he addresses this real life then with real truth and and real sin, with real redemption and real issues, with real answers and solutions, real lostness with redemption. And so the only way for that to happen is if everything that Paul is saying from that point forward is actually from God and not just his opinion. If, if it's not from God, it's just good advice at best. And so Paul says, listen, this is real solutions to your issues. This really does bring salvation and sanctification into your life. And so I need you to know this is from God. This is from him and him alone. And the God who does have the right to say no to us because he is Lord and it's all his. And, and he's the only one that has the power to transform our lives. He's the only one that has the ability to show us the grace of salvation that would bring peace, he says in verse 3. And without God's grace, there is no peace. But in God's grace, we can know peace at the deepest level. He's revealed to us his kingdom and, and who we are created to have community with, and we can begin to live in that redemption. And the deeper and deeper we lean into who we are in Jesus, the more peace we will have, the more joy we will find. But it's all by the grace of God. 
And listen, I know that some of us, we've given church a shot. Some of us, we've given religion a shot. Some of us are giving the world a shot and trying to seek whatever it may be to find everything that we're looking for and can only have in God. And listen to me, over the next six months as we walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, I would just challenge you to give Jesus a listen. Maybe you have tried everything, but Jesus is actually the answer. And so Paul establishes this truth that it's all about God. And then he wants them to listen because everything that he is saying is from God. It's from God to us. And and many of us would say, okay, I get that. And God does have authority in my life. I do believe that this is all from God, Brandon. So I think you're just wasting some time just telling me that all of this is from God. Just get on with it. But here's the test to know whether you really believe this is all from God or not. Do we actually receive it? And do we actually desire to be transformed by it? And this is a deep question that we need to wrestle with because we are all going to wrestle over the next six months with things in this letter that are going to make us, as I said, not want to listen, not want to respond, run the other way, fall into our own desires and passions, into the cultural norms that are more comfortable, and we are all going to be faced with the reality of, do I actually believe this is the word from God or is it just some advice I can take or leave? So I really want to lean into this heavily that it is from God. Paul says all of this is from him because all of us are going to be tested over the next several months. So he says, I'm Paul, an apostle sent by God with accountability, with Sosthenes. And then he says, to the church, to the the ones called out by God. And I love how he says, in every place. So he doesn't just go here in Corinth, but everywhere to those who are sanctified. Now, sanctification is typically something that we think of as being progressive. Progressive sanctification is the theological way that we think about it. It's, it's, uh, justification happens when we place our faith in Jesus. We are saved. We are set free from sin. We're saved by his grace. Sanctification then is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, living out the identity that we have been fully given in him. But here, he says, you have been positionally sanctified. Yes, there is a reality of walking in God, growing in him, leaning into him, understanding him in deeper ways, and living out the identity you've already been given positionally. But he says, all of the church, everywhere who's called out by God, all who have placed their faith in him, positionally, you are sanctified, wholly righteous, wholly made new in him. Now, in in these couple of verses, he is saying a whole lot, but here's what I want us to see. He's saying to the church, which is uh, ecclesia, the called out ones by God, everywhere who are sanctified in him. Here's one thing I want us to take from this. The church is not a place to be attended. Okay, the church is not a place to be attended. It is an identity to be practiced in community. It is identity to be practiced in community to and before the world in unity centered around Christ alone. Not as a subculture, as we said, not as a self-righteous culture, but a grace-filled culture that serves our city, that loves our city, that reveals Christ and the unity that can only come from him in our city. And that means that we are transformed by his truth. It means that we begin to spend our money different, our time different, our talents different, all for the glory of God to reveal him, which is the most important thing. And the reason we are here on earth and the only way that we do not waste all that we are is to give all that we are to him and for his glory and to reveal him to all who do not know him. To live in community and unity in the gospel truth together. This is what we are called out to do. And this is what we should be seeking as the people of God. To gather together, to be mobilized, to to be in deep community throughout the week. What we would call small groups for formation and mission. And And to reveal Christ where we live, work, and play. The church is the catalyst for hope in our community. So, so listen, let me ask you, what does it look like for your life to be in Jesus first? 
What does it look like for you to be united in Jesus in the people of God? Those are some questions that we need to think through. What does it look like right now for my life to be wholly his? What does it look like? What do I need to do? What do I need to pursue? What do I need to shift? What do I need to repent of for my life to be found in unity around him with his people that we are revealing the gospel truth as his church? Those are two questions we need to wrestle with deeply. And Paul says, as as I just close up, give me 60 more seconds. He says, I'm thankful for God's grace because of his faithfulness. He says, even though you guys are totally jacked up in verse 4, I am thankful for you because of God's grace on you that even when you, the church, are unfaithful, he is faithful and people continue to come to faith in him even when the church is not doing what it has been called to do. God is faithful to keep us. And this letter is a call out to the church to grab hold of his truth and begin walking in it to grow in maturity. And then he says, listen, the problem with the people of God walking in God, the problem of the church revealing God, the reason that the city does not see God the way that we want him to, the city to, or the church is beautiful as the city should see the church is beautiful, is not because we are lacking anything in need, but we are using what God has given us for our own glory and not his. He says, We can't say, God, if you would do this in my life, then I would. We can't say, God, if you would do this in the church, then we would. And God, if you would just do this in the city and shift this, then they would see. No, he says the problem is not that we don't have the gifts. It's not that God has not given us the numbers and the power through his Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do. But it's that we are not leaning into him the way he's called us to lean into him. And so this morning, I just want to ask us the simple question as we dive into this book. What is our part? What has God called us to do? What do we need to lay down to be fully his? What do we need to shift to be in unity around who he is? And then he just calls us back to the gospel. He always begins with the gospel in verses 8 and 9. He always starts there because who we are determines what we do. And so he knows if we understand that our identity is in Christ alone, then everything else he is saying we will be able to receive. But if we are making something of the world our identity, and even if we're saying Christ is our identity and that too then creeps in and bees our identity, then we will not allow God to speak into what we are finding identity in. So we will hear things from God that we will say, no, I cannot change. But if our identity is solely in him and he defines who we are, then no matter what God says, we will receive. And no matter how hard it is, we will begin to walk in. And so Paul says nine times in nine verses, it's all about Jesus. Look to Jesus, focus on Jesus, seek Jesus, surrender to Jesus, rest in the power of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of him because if you do, you will fall into the cultural norms. But in Christ, the whole church looks like Jesus. And he provides everything that we need to do all that he has called us to do.